Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. People are entering medication programs, people are getting jobs, people are getting their kids back. I mean, it's just, it's amazing the impact our community teams and care teams are having. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in Eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian Meets World. We are back another week. It's Will. And Neil. Hey, how's it going? How's it going? Man, it's going well. Can't complain down here in the 606. Anything new this week? Man, nothing jumps off the page at me as being new, but. What are you talking about? What about the uh, Appalachian kid done good? Huh? The Burrow. What? Appalachian kid in the Super Bowl. Oh, man. Joey He's made B. out of Athens. Athens, Ohio. Yeah, I know. Since the GOAT got beat, you know, football is kind of dead to me. I guess Joey's on the cusp of Appalachia. And, you know, being a huge GOAT fan like I am, I do appreciate Joe Burrow. I might get on the Joe Burrow bandwagon now that Tom Brady's retiring. Yeah, he doesn't wear anything that's not real. <laughs> I love that quote. <laughs> I mean – but oh, I, yeah. I don't I don't know. I, I'm sure you saw his Heisman speech. He utilized his platform and part of his speech was to talk about, you know, where he grew up in Athens and Appalachia and how a lot of people didn't have food to eat. And part of his, I guess you would call it platform. He's partnered with the Foundation for Appalachia, Ohio, and, and he has it. They have their own fund for feeding youth, feeding people throughout Appalachia, Ohio, which is pretty cool. I think after that speech, like contributions went up 200% or something crazy. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. I remember that speech, but I didn't realize just how involved he was. So that's, that's pretty awesome. I'm looking forward to when he comes on our show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, he'll probably join us, but probably after the Super Bowl. So yeah, I got a Appalachia business for you this week. Oh yeah. You got an app biz. Let's hit it. The app biz of the week, since it's February, kickoff to Black History Month. This is a business we've talked about before when we were talking about kind of the foodways throughout Appalachia. But Black Soil, it's a social enterprise in Kentucky. They're actually based in Lexington, Kentucky. But a lot of their work is based around Appalachia, Kentucky, farmers in Appalachia, Kentucky. They are an organization, like I said, a social enterprise is trying to revive the agricultural heritage in, in Black farmers in Kentucky. A couple, Ashley Smith and Trevor Claiborne, started it several years ago. Their their main focus, they support Black farmers and, and entrepreneurs 
And they offer CSAs, they offer agritourism, youth outreach, farmers markets, meal prep, ag credit, food demonstration, kitchens, community partnerships, and delivery and curbside pickup. If you go to their website, blacksoilky.com, you can also shop curated products from black farmers throughout Kentucky. It's a really cool organization doing some great things, partnering with some great people to increase black ownership of farms, even in Kentucky. Of the 76,000 agriculture op- operations, only 600 are owned by black farmers. They're trying to increase that and just keep that farming heritage to the black community. That's pretty cool. I have to uh, I have to check that out. What did you say that website was again? It is blacksoilky.com. So B-L-A-C-K-S-O-I-L-K-Y.com. Some of you listeners outside of Appalachia, I'm glad he spelled that for you. I know all of our Appalachian friends got that soil, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. soil that <laughs> also be pronounced that way also. So yeah, I got you to spell that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Speaking of that, we've had our, our words on here before, our Appalachian words coming straight from the dictionary of Southern Appalachian English. So soil, yes, that's how I say it. That's how we say it, right? Soil. Absolutely. Speaking of that, we're going to enter into a new foray of the social media world. You know, we're not the best at social media and we admit it on here, but we are going to enter the world of TikTok. Uh Uh-oh, here we come. So we are going to have an Appalachian word of the day every day, every working day, five days a week on TikTok. But kind of transition as we mentioned last week, we're going to dive into the opioid epidemic a little bit. That's a daily news feed in Appalachia. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And we're transitioning over into to this episode and what its focus is going to be on because opioid crisis in America, the heart, the epicenter is in Appalachia. I'm looking forward to to our guest tonight. It is the epicenter and it has been for a while, unfortunately, when you're talking about opioid abuse. The prescription rates in in Appalachia are just insane. Yeah. And, you know, we've heard how that has occurred over the years and who's to blame. We've talked about that before. But we, you know, we and, and not many people spend a whole lot of time talking about how to fix the problem. In our last episode, you heard us talk to a, a film producer who's done a lot of great work that kind of focuses in on the stories within uh, Appalachia and, and deals with the opioid issues. But tonight's guest really hones in on why we should go about fixing the problems. I guess the best way to say it is how we can go about fixing the issue. No, yeah, I'm glad you made that point. A majority of her research in Eastern Kentucky is focused on drug overdose rates and how can we reduce those drug overdose rates because it's really, you know, wreaking havoc on Appalachia, Kentucky. If you look at counties within Appalachia and counties outside Appalachia, death rates from opioid overdose are over 50% higher in Appalachia counties than the rest of the country. I'm super pumped about having our guest on who is literally a research specialist. Without further ado. The Dr. April Young, she works at University of Kentucky, but she's an expert in the field of opioid abuse in rural areas, especially throughout Appalachia. And so, like you said, without further ado, you want to get her on here? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it.
On tonight's episode, we have a special guest, Dr. April Young. She is an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology with the University of Kentucky and also a faculty associate with the Center on Drug and Alcohol Research. She's one of the leading drug abuse researchers in the country, and she has conducted substance abuse research in rural Kentucky going on over 10 years now and has led at least five federally funded studies. I I could be wrong. There may be more now. Uh, Dr. Young, can we call you April? Do you mind? Oh, yeah, of course. Thank you so much for being on the show. We we appreciate it. and, And thanks for your time. Well, thanks for having me. If you've listened to any of our episodes you know our first question. We, we try to keep it light in the beginning, especially with this topic. Neil and I's family, we're big on tradition, as most Appalachians are. And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. Always a huge spread, usually more appetizers than the actual meal. But we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? We start with dessert. We, <laughs> we get the cookies out before dinner. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. So what's for dessert? You used to do it twice? More. Yeah, more, more <laughs> dessert. <laughs> Since we have that out of the way, we'll go ahead and get into this is a really heavy topic, kind of a switch from what we're used to uh, on our shows, but definitely an important topic for our regions of Appalachia, but all over the country, really. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, where you're from, and what kind of drew you to this type of research? especially in rural uh, Kentucky? Sure. So I'm originally from a small town in Georgia, about an hour and a half southeast of Atlanta, and um, wanted to play ball (laughs) when I graduated from high school, ended up at Transylvania University, and just fell in love with Kentucky. And Lexington was a big city for me, and I found myself just gravitating out toward eastern Kentucky. It felt like home. I felt like I could breathe out there and just just love the place. And so after I graduated, I decided to stay in Lexington. I did my um, master's degree at UK and had the chance to work on a, a drug use study. And the study was focused down in hazard. So I, I started analyzing the data there, seeing the scope of the problem. I was largely naive to it, even though I'd had um, experience with family and friends and whatnot back in Georgia. The scope of the problem was overwhelming, and I just felt like I have to do something about this. So I went um, and got my doctorate at Emory University in Atlanta and came right back and was able to get a faculty position at UK and really worked in the field ever since in the same general area in Kentucky. The mountains, mountains have a tendency to draw, draw people back. (laughs) You know, drug abuse obviously is, is a major issue across the country, but specific to the Appalachia region is opioid abuse, which is obviously what this topic is about. Can you just, for reference, I have the understanding that there are kind of three types of opioids, the prescribed opioid, which is, you know, Oxycontin, morphine or whatever, fentanyl, and then heroin. Are those the three main types of opioids? Just can you describe what what an opioid is? Yeah, sure. And you name the three types. I mean, I think that back in the 90s, what most people would associate with the term opioids would be the pain pills. It would Oxycontin, Roxycodone, and so on. Um, and then came heroin. We could talk about how that transition happened. And now it's mainly uh, synthetics like fentanyl. And those are much stronger and, and more deadly you know, for overdoses and things like that. But those are generally the three categories we talk about. 
And how exactly, just for our listeners, so I know there's this language that it's obviously not an addiction. It's a chronic relapsing brain disease, uh, which is what opioid abuse is. But how are the drugs addictive? Can, can you just go into that a little bit? Yeah. So at a basic level, essentially, they when you take these drugs, when you take opioids, your brain is flooded with dopamine. And over time, your brain adjusts itself to not have the same reaction to that flood of dopamine. And it takes more and more and more to get the same reaction. And so you see people use again and again and again, they develop a substance use disorder, an opioid use disorder specifically, and it changes the brain. And so chronic use can change the brain. And we have thankfully a three FDA approved medicines that can treat that condition. And we definitely want to get into that treatment. You talked about abuse. Can you talk about the change in language a little bit of why it's important to kind of steer away from addiction and go into abuse? And also, can you talk about this being a disease, just like diabetes or, or any other disease that we may have of how, you know, we could kind of destigmatize this problem or issue that we have? Sure. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that question about language because that's something that often we don't, we don't talk about enough. You know, we've really tried to move away from language like addict or clean, dirty, that sort of thing, in part because that lets the substance use define the person. The person is much more than their substance use. We use person first language now, a person who uses drugs, a person with an opioid use disorder or with a substance use disorder, really highlighting the fact that this is a medical condition. And we, we try to steer clear of that stigmatizing language. I think it's confusing for people sometimes because they hear people um, call themselves a quote addict. And some of that is rooted in that AA and a kind of community. And if that's the way someone wants to identify, obviously we respect that, but we, we try not to perpetuate the stigma that comes along um, with calling someone essentially their condition. Generally, especially coming where we're from in Eastern Kentucky, we've heard opioid abuse is not a new it's not like it happened last year. It's not It's not a new problem to us. Maybe across the country, they may have seen a, a rise in opioid abuse, especially in, in rural Appalachia, and thought that it just appeared out of nowhere. But can you kind of just give a brief history of opioid abuse in Appalachia and why it's been so problematic? Yeah, the brief part is the difficult part. Because like you said, it has been a long history. Opioid use has been high in the Appalachian region, especially Central Appalachia. Appalachia since the 90s. And not coincidentally, that's when Oxycontin was approved by the FDA. And not to rehash the past, but it really is such a key part of, of this story that, you know, they flooded the towns with sales reps. They tricked doctors into prescribing. When the doctors pushed back and they noticed things like overdoses, they doubled down. And now infamously, we know from the uh, documents that have been released during the litigation they're involved in now, that they said, hammer the abusers, quote. And it was to blame, blame the people who were getting, um, developing an opioid use disorder to blame them and not the drug. And so we already had stigma. And now you have a company marketing stigma. It made it so much worse. Um, they targeted this region and they targeted Maine in part because of the, the manual labor people were doing. You know, they did have chronic pain and, and then it took off. We noticed that it was taking off. By we, I mean the state. They implemented CASPER, 
which is, you know, prescription drug monitoring program to try to get a handle on it. At, at one point, people in Eastern Kentucky, there were like three prescriptions for every person in some of those counties. So they got a handle on it. But when that happened, they decreased supply but they didn't do anything really about demand. And you had all of these people with opioid use disorder needing those drugs to avoid being just completely sick. And now you've turned off the faucet. And so we saw street prices of drugs skyrocket. Aroxycodone went up to $25 to $45 a pill just for one pill. Oxycontin was going for $180 a pill at one time. And so now you have this, this drug market with this high price point and what a perfect market for heroin to enter when you could sell it or at a higher price in Eastern Kentucky than you could in say Detroit. So it really paved the way for heroin to come in and now fentanyl and what we see now. And I, I mean, I really feel like based on what we've seen in our research, it would not be the problem it is now if not for that marketing. We had more people start injecting with Oxycontin, then meth, cocaine, heroin, and every other opioid combined in our research. So it played a huge role. It essentially has made, you know, Appalachia kind of the epicenter of the opioid epidemic. You, you know, back, I don't know, was it the 80s with the crack epidemic in, in, in inner cities or urban areas? How does this, this rural opioid abuse or epidemic, how does it compare to urban areas? Are, are they different? Are they similar? I, I'm just curious about that question. Yeah, it's hard to compare. I mean, the crack and cocaine in the 90s, that has its own complex history related to race. You know, you have essentially the same drug, but the incarceration links and everything else were, were much, much longer for people who are using crack versus cocaine. Only difference was the race of the people predominantly using it. And so with opioids now, there's still, there's still this issue of, of race, but there's also this issue of sort of socioeconomic status and Class. rural urban. And so when this opioid use sort of crisis was centered in central Appalachia and these rural towns, there wasn't much talk about it. But when it crept into the suburbs and the cities and the people who had money and political clout, then it was an epidemic. And I, I think that that is similar to other epidemics where when it affects people who might not have that political power, it gets overlooked until that changes. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I'm glad you made that point. Like we said j just a minute ago of how, where we're from, we, we've seen it for a while now. But like you said, once it crept into the suburbs, that's when people started really hearing about it and trying to uh, solve an, an issue. Right. Um, I, I just wanted to ask from your research and your own personal experience, speaking to abusers, the clients that you may have, what ways do people become addictive? I mean, are, do they do it more recreational? Is it because they were prescribed from an in injury and, and then they become uh, abusers or is it something else? There are a lot of different reasons. We still have a lot of people develop an opioid use disorder after a prescription. I mean, it's really shocking. We've been implementing programs now for over 10 years and, and still in some of the Eastern Kentucky counties, we've got more than one prescription for every person in the county still. And um, so that is a big, a big pathway into, into opioid use disorder. And then also uh, people who have just experienced generational drug use at this point, it's been going on so long that it's been like passed down in families and, um, you know, growing up with families using drugs, there's trauma that comes with that. And so it's hard to break that cycle and the things that come with it, the cycles of incarceration, 
of unemployment, of, you know, all of these things that really set people back. And so, especially among women in our studies, we hear um, of a lot of trauma and frankly, it's used to kind of self-medicate. And then among men, we hear that too. A little more initiations due to, to like a first recreational use, but by and large, it's, it's other routes. It's not people playing around who suddenly start becoming addicted. Have you seen it more in rural areas where there's kind of a lack of opportunity or more despair, especially during the COVID epidemic? Have, oh, you, yeah. seen, have you seen a rise in use because of self-medication, like you said? Yeah, I mean, I'll touch on the despair thing first. You know, there was an article several years ago that sort of called this a disease of despair. And certainly, I mean, for decades everywhere, we know things like poverty and unemployment and um, lack of housing, it contributes certainly to the development of, of substance use disorder and other outcomes. But really to call it a disease of despair lets the people who brought it in here off the hook. You know, what about all that marketing that really set this uh, in motion? And so it's not just that, it's the intersection of that despair, those that socioeconomic, those challenges intersecting with the fact that y'all were targeted basically. Right. And, and I feel like that's what still drives it. But in terms of COVID, um, I mean, we can touch on that a bit later, but yes, the short answer is we have seen overdoses skyrocket starting in April, 2020. So the month right after the lockdown, it was almost immediate. Wow. And, and I want to also get into your research later, but I, I know that with the, and we'll mention this later too, but the healing communities grant that you got, I know you just talked about the marketing and letting people off the hook. And there's been a lot of films. There's a little lot of, of journalists, little, been a lot of research on what caused the problem and who's at fault. But really we want to focus this episode on, on what treatments are out there, what we're trying to do to overcome the epidemic or to just, you know, like I said, destigmatize or just help people to realize that this is a disease and people are people. And in the end, no one's less deserving than anyone else. And we just want to make that point. But also I want to get into treatment and harm reduction. Yeah. I don't know if a lot of people really know the term harm reduction or what it may mean. Can you just kind of briefly describe what harm reduction is, especially in regards to opioid abuse? Yeah, and I'm glad you want to be forward looking because, of course, the past is the past, but there is a there are a lot of good things going on that Kentucky's doing and other Appalachian states are doing to address the challenge. So, um, and harm reduction is one of those. It is kind of what it is, is, is reducing harms related to substance use, is meeting people where they are. I mean, these programs are open to anyone, but of course, they're targeting mainly people who use drugs and people who inject drugs. They provide HIV testing, they provide hepatitis C testing, they provide condoms, they provide wound care. I mean, the list goes on and on. But of course, the thing that gets all the attention is that they provide needles, they exchange needles, so they take unclean needles back from the people, uh, the clients they see. And so there is a lot of stigma about the programs and I've taken a beaten in many town halls and <laughs> city council meetings, you know, about this. And I think to a person who might not be familiar with the research on harm reduction or really with what it does, it is hard to grasp that a program, you know, handing out needles, taking back needles would not somehow have some sort of effect. But really, when you think about it carefully, you think about the services, you look at the science, I mean, it's overwhelming. I could fill my office full of papers that have found positive effects, not just to the clients, but 
to the community. So for example, um, you know, people think it enables drug use, that it's going to increase drug use somehow. But the science shows that people who use these programs are five times more likely to enter treatment than someone who does not use the program. And people who use these programs are three times uh, more likely to reduce how often they inject than someone who doesn't. So it's actually quite the opposite. And the reason is when we talk to people who use the programs, the thing that affects them is that they're going there and they're being treated like human beings. And I mean, isn't it sad that that's an intervention, treating someone as a human being? These folks interact with them. They don't judge them. And when the person's ready for treatment, they know exactly where to send them. And I think that that's why these programs are successful. In addition to, of course, HIV, hepatitis C, all of those things. So harm, harm reduction, in a sense, it- it's fighting the entrenched belief that drug abuse is, is kind of a moral choice when really that no one is less deserved. Exactly. People that are abused, like you said, it's a it's a chronic disease. So harm harm reduction is seen as kind of a stepping stone to treatment. Is that am I correct in saying that? Well, I think some people see it that way. But harm reduction really is there to serve the people wherever they are. So if they are using and they don't want to stop using, that's fine. Their goal is not to get them into treatment, is to keep them as healthy as possible. So if someone's not ready, let's just try to prevent you from getting HIV or hepatitis C or abscesses. Let's get your, you know, hepatitis A vaccine. They just meet people where they are. Now, if they're ready for treatment, absolutely. They try to send them in that direction. By not sort of pushing it, that's how they build that rapport. And so that's how they're successful. You know, you mentioned syringe programs, which throughout the country that's become, especially in legislatures, that's become an issue. But also Narcan or or Naloxone, is that part of harm reduction as well to distribute those in in the best way possible? And and can you describe for some people that don't know what Narcan is? Sure. Yeah. So Narcan um, is the brand name for the the drug naloxone. And it's a nasal spray that can reverse an opioid overdose. So, um, you know, when someone is overdosing, they stop breathing. And this is a very simple nasal spray. If you can use Flonase, you can use um, Narcan that will wake them up. Um, It basically knocks the opioids off the receptors in their brain and jars them awake. And it has saved many, many lives. So some harm reduction programs give that out. Pharmacies can provide that. Medicaid pays for it in Kentucky. You're able to get that from a pharmacy directly and then health departments and others can provide it. But it's it's like having an AED or knowing CPR. I mean, the Surgeon General says everybody should carry it. I carry it. It's my purse. It's in my car because you never know. EpiPen. Or an EpiPen. Exactly. Yeah. You just never know when you're going to come upon somebody who needs it. We just had a documentary filmmaker that did heroin and recovery. Yes. I don't know if you've seen heroin, but it just amazed me watching that documentary of how you assume that a fire department in a small town of West Virginia would be concerned about fires, but their number one thing is to uh, distribute naloxone or Narcan and, and to help with opioid overdoses, which is was crazy for me to watch and, and identify with that. It is. Yeah. I mean, that highlights the need for treatment too. And and let's try to get them back to fighting fires. Right. If we can get people into treatment. 
since we kind of described harm reduction as really trying to keep people safe, but also we want to continue, you know, to fight that prejudice that prevent many people to seek treatment. But can you just explain what treatment looks like for opioid abuse? I, I know there are three FDA approved medications for treatment, which also people will refute. But can you just talk about what treatment looks like or what it is? Yeah, I mean, there are there are many paths to recovery. I'm sure you've heard that. Some are less treacherous and straighter and shorter than others. And, and I would put the medications in that category. Um, and the medications that I'm talking about, like you said, some are controversial. They're um, methadone, buprenorphine, which most people would know as Suboxone, um, even though there are other sort of formulations of it, and uh, Vivitrol or extended release naltrexone is what Vivitrol is. And so those are the ones that are FDA approved and methanol and buprenorphine are, are so effective. There have been many studies that have shown that compared to a placebo or compared to detox, success rate of someone on buprenorphine or methadone uh, is very high. So these notions that people have to quote, relapse or return to use six times before they bounce back or they have to hit rock bottom before they can get on their feet. I mean, that's ridiculous. It's like saying someone has to have stage four cancer before they can, you know, be cured. We have treatments that if people would go toward these evidence-based treatments, they would not have to go through that. But you alluded to the fact there's a lot of stigma against the medications and is not unrelated to everything the region's already been through with the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't trust them either, you know, but so now we're battling that stigma, but there are decades and decades of evidence suggesting this is the path. So now we have not just stigma against substance use that keeps people from seeking treatment. We have stigma against the treatment that is the most effective. So we're just sort of digging ourselves a whole. I think most people hear of people entering recovery through like NAAA residential treatment because a lot of those people are working in the peer community now and they talk, tell their story and um, that does work for some folks. But for people who've been on medication, because of all that stigma, they don't tell their story. And so you don't hear those success stories because of the stigma. And, and I think that if they were able to be more public about that, people would realize how this is really affecting the communities. And, and I think Neil mentioned earlier of how, you know, where we're from, I don't know of any one person that hasn't been affected by the opioid epidemic, but you know, you mentioned the word evidence-based methods and what you're referring to are evidence-based. So you're suggesting that medications are the most effective at uh, remission of opioid abuse? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And how, how long is treatment for opioid abuse? Is it a life? I mean, is it like AA? If you go into a facility, is it, is it a lifelong thing? For some people it is. And for some people it's years, for some people it's months. I think it's a decision between the doctor and the patient. I mean, it's, it's just like being on a medication for hypertension. And for some people, they need that for the rest of their lives. And that's fine. For some people, they may be having some other condition and be able to come off of that, the hypertensive meds in a year, two years. It just varies. There's this notion that people need to taper down quickly, that they aren't really, quote, clean if they're still on medication. And so there's this push to taper people down. But that's when we see people uh, return to use. And now with the drug market the way it is, overdose. 
Yeah, it's, it's a chronic disease, just like diabetes, hypertension, and can be treated like that. People get their kids back, they get their jobs back, and you would never know if they were on buprenorphine. And, and I like how you personalize it, which is why we wanted to have this episode to really educate people on, on the treatments that are, that are out there, the harm reduction that is out there and that people are people. And because someone has a disease, because someone has diabetes, it doesn't make them any less of a person. Yeah. So, so I'm glad that you personalized it in, in that way. And to that point, what are some of the, especially in rural areas, what are some of the barriers or challenges to treatment? Yeah, I mean, I think stigma is number one, but we won't rehash that. <laughs> Transportation is is a challenge in rural communities, not having sort of local treatment providers. Thankfully, in Kentucky, we have Medicaid coverage for treatment. Without that Medicaid expansion, the problem would be so much worse, but is they're that, able to get that covered. Is that only in Kentucky? I mean, does West Virginia have that? I can't speak to that. Yeah, I'm not sure. Ohio or West Virginia, what their, their policies are, but I know Kentucky was sort of a flat flagship state in terms of Medicaid expansion for substance use disorder treatment. And so thankfully that barrier has been reduced a bit. And then, you know, following evidence-based practices, once you are in treatment, you know, having the facility make sure that they are, for example, having patient-centered care and keeping you on medications for as long as you need them rather than sort of force, forcing you down or flat out telling you you can't be on it. So those are, those are the sorts of barriers that are common and, and trying to get physicians to um, become wavered to prescribe buprenorphine. That's a challenge too. I like how you mentioned Kentucky was kind of at the forefront in that. I, I work in economic development and I've seen, especially in Kentucky, especially in Eastern Kentucky, not even recently in the last several years, we've seen this shift of funding to help with this abuse or this epidemic to try to steer funding to the treatments, to harm reduction or to things that could help with this challenge. Have you seen that? I know your recent grant was for a record amount, I think 87 million for three years for the Healing Communities Grant. Have you seen the funding shift to solving the problem? Yeah. Yeah. And I really have to commend Hal Rogers here. He has really brought a lot of attention to this issue. He helped lead the the charge to remove the federal ban on funding for syringe service programs, harm reduction programs. In interviews where they discussed that with him, you know, he really talked about the devastation he had seen um, in Kentucky and the need to, to do something and be proactive uh, rather than sort of letting it get worse and having to react. And yes, you know, more and more funding is being tied to the use of evidence-based practices, which is encouraging because it's better than sort of flushing it down the toilet. <laughs> and then we are receiving grants to do this work in the community. So the Healing Community Study um, was the largest research grant UK had received. It was 87 million, but there were four states involved. So there are other institutions who got grants under this. And we're working in 16 counties in Kentucky, and it has a really lofty goal of reducing overdose deaths by 40% in just a few years. Uh, And when overdoses are increasing and we're up against all these challenges, that's a tall order. But we won't know until the data are, are all collected and done. But it feels like we're making a difference. I mean, daily, we're hearing about um, lives saved from the Narcan that's being distributed under the grant. People are entering medication programs, people are getting jobs, people are getting their kids back. I mean, it's just, it's amazing the impact our community teams and care teams are having. 
the hope is that this will be a model for the rest of the state and hopefully the rest of the country to follow. That's incredible. Can you speak to the economic cost of abuse? I don't know if you've researched that, but I'm sure you've seen it through your work, just the cost of denying what's happening. Yeah, well, my focus is mainly on infectious disease. So I'll start with HIV. (laughs) With the lifetime cost of treating somebody with HIV is over $400,000. And for hepatitis C, you know, that's not all that far behind, though it's come down recently, thankfully. The cost of of an overdose and the devastation that causes a family, I mean, just the trickle-down cost of that are enormous. You're thinking about harm reduction programs. Back to the infectious disease consequences, syringes cost like just a few cents. And they're preventing these infections that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and other infections that land people in the hospital and have to keep them in there for weeks, you know, like an infected heart valves. Economically, it makes good sense to take care of people with substance use disorder. The same goes with our criminal justice system. I mean, we are really incarcerating a lot of people, second highest in jail admissions in the country, um, Kentucky has. And it costs about $44 a day to incarcerate a person. We're running our county budgets dry. About 15% of their budgets are spent on their jail bills. And most people who leave it come back. So, I mean, imagine what that money could be doing. Yeah, and I, I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned that. And you mentioned earlier how Hal Rogers has funded harm reduction programs. I, I think that has kind of been a shift from what they have done in the past uh, when you mentioned incarceration being an issue. And, you know, you never would incarcerate somebody, someone with diabetes just because they have a disease, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When, when we're talking about treatment, when you talked about cost effectiveness, are there enough treatment facilities or, or harm reduction programs in Appalachia? No, no, there aren't. And, and some of it's related to stigma. I mean, primary care providers can prescribe buprenorphine. This doesn't need to happen in big, fancy facilities. It's just normal doctors. They face a lot of stigma, though, when they're trying to decide whether or not to become wavered to prescribe it. You know, there's capacity to scale it up. It's just untapped. I have seen for people who require residential treatment, there are more options for men than for women in Eastern Kentucky. They often have to travel all the way over to Bowling Green and away from their family. And and that causes its own sort of disruptions and trauma to the family. So no, we need more treatment is the short answer, but there's untapped potential. You mentioned the supply and demand earlier, but just from the supply side, even with treatment, with harm reduction, especially with harm reduction, you know, if it weren't opioids, there would be other drugs. From the supply side, have you seen a rise in other drugs or a shift? I I know there's kind of been a comeback of meth here recently, but have you seen a rise in other drugs beyond opioids in the region? Yeah. And I think in the past, we've been able to think about these categories as separate, but really this poly substance use, you know, so people are using meth, this got fentanyl in it. <laughs> um, people switch back and forth in a day from meth to heroin, one to wake up, one to go to bed. I mean, it's, there's just mixed. And so if we're able to treat someone for opioid use disorder, it addresses a lot of other issues. But I have seen, I have seen an uptick in meth. We've seen a little bit of an uptick in cocaine, nothing to write home about just yet, but the meth increase has been noticeable. And it's really scary because of the fentanyl being included in meth. A lot of people are overdosing on meth, not realizing that it has something like fentanyl in it. Uh, So that polysubstance use is really dangerous and, and becoming more problematic. Are the treatments different for meth and for opioids? So unfortunately, we don't have as many options for meth. People are are working on this. There have been things like contingency management, 
type programs that can help with meth use, but we don't have the options we do with opioids and, and there needs to be more work in that area. And the government has realized that we've seen more initiatives come out that specifically name meth as a focus. And so hopefully we'll be there soon. Since you're so entrenched in this community, someone who has chronic brain disease, on this episode, what would they want people to know? Someone who may have this stigma or someone who may think differently, what what would they want people to know about them, about this uh, disease, or just in general? That's a good question. And I'm glad that you asked it because not many people get the chance to kind of um, tell their story because of all of the stigma. I mean, I can't, of course, speak for them, but I'll tell you about some of the people I've interacted with and the impact they've had. So I've been working now in in Eastern Kentucky for over a decade. About five years ago, I encountered a young man who at a time when we were really having a hard time with the research, we could not dig in our roots. We couldn't get buy-in from the community. I'm an outsider. And so it's hard to establish that rapport. You know how it is. And um, and he was able... What was that? We've talked about that quite a bit on here. Yeah, yeah, and that's understandable. But um, he was able to help us get that buy-in. And the study took off really thanks to him. Because of that, we were able to land uh, over a $5 million grant to help 12 counties. And this is a person who is actively using drugs, but who wanted to see something better for his community. Brilliant, nice, well-mannered guy with aspirations to study astronomy. Uh, these are the types of people that we work with. He would he would go to the college campus and he would sit, the local college campus, he would sit and wait for people to get out of class. And he would walk with a class until the till they had to enter their next period and he would sit back down. And he would do that so that he could feel normal and like he was somebody. And so these are people with with dreams. They're people with the intellect to do big things, but they're struggling with a disorder that we just, uh, we're, we've stigmatized and we don't have enough treatment for. What would you tell people that aren't abusers? What would be most effective for them to do to better understand? Is there something that others could do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think love people, you know, with substance use disorder who use drugs and they're, I know from personal experience how difficult it can be and it's exhausting, but you have to understand this is is a medical condition. They have to get treatment and how they act sometimes is not who they are, I would say most times. And then I think support those evidence-based treatments. Tell your mayor and your judge executive and your health board that you support the harm reduction program, that you're glad that it's getting needles off the street, that you want to avoid an HIV outbreak in your community, you know, and you support those programs, support the primary care doc that decides to prescribe Suboxone and and don't sort of push back and say, I don't want to sit with those people in the waiting room, which is things we hear. Talk to your pharmacist, try to get them to give out Narcan, encourage that, ask for it you know, create some demand and write your congressmen and your senators and tell them that there are needs in this area and that policies need to support people who are um, struggling with substance use disorder. You mentioned the waiting room. It it just made me think back to uh, I'm I'm done with waiting rooms. I I think (laughs) we should never use waiting rooms again. I think that's a positive impact of COVID. (laughs) I agree. Just use your laptop instead, you know? Yeah. I mean, gosh. Neil's yeah. got issues with waiting rooms. Yeah. yeah, I got I got extreme issues, but <laughs> sorry. 
Can we not not switch because we've obviously been talking about it, but can we talk specifically about your research? Two of the major studies that you have done are Care to Hope, which I think is almost a $5 million grant. And it was for five years. Mm -hmm. And then there's also this Healing Community Grants, which like you said, is $87 million over, is it three years? Healing Community? It was extended. So now it's just over four, right around four years. Okay. And, and are you close to being done with the Care to Hope? Are you towards the end and seeing results? Can you talk about that first? And then maybe we'll talk about healing communities. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So Care to Hope, we are in our fifth year of the five-year grant. We have um, been thrifty. So we've saved some money. We're going to extend it if they approve of that. We're searching for more money to kind of extend that work. That grant focuses in 12 counties. So the area right around Moorhead and then the area kind of coming through the gorge and down to hazard. We work with people who are using drugs or have used in the past and that are involved in the criminal justice system. And we try to help get them back on their feet. Everything from helping them with insurance signups to helping them get Narcan uh, and get into treatment and really troubleshooting all those barriers they encounter when they are involved in the justice system. We also, as part of that study, we follow over 300 people who are actively using. We survey them every six months. We test them for HIV and hep C, and we just sort of keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening and then try to help them with whatever their needs are. And we work with community coalitions in that work, and that includes pastors, pharmacists, jailers, sort of people from all walks of life who are amazing and inspiring and have really helped that project. It wouldn't be where it is without them. Just curious. And then we have advisory boards of people who used to. Just out of curiosity, do you help them transition into employment? Is that part of this grant or? Yeah. Yeah. So if they're not employed already, then we we do try to help them with that. The case I was I was talking about earlier, we were, we were trying to help the guy get financial aid, you know, so we, we try to help with whatever that next step needs to be for them to recover and get into remission. And, and so the positive outcomes from this, have you obviously you're trying to extend it. So there have been many. Uh, can you just speak to a few? Yeah. I mean, I think that individually we've talked with, with clients who have not used now in years, you know, that were using when they entered the study, the, the part of the study that I'm referring to actually is not an intervention study. It, the purpose of it is not to necessarily like help them unless they ask for it. They say it's quote, changed their life because again, we treated them like human beings and as their words. And so I do think in a small way, we're having a difference there, but we're also having a difference, I think at a policy level. So for example, we talked about Suboxone earlier. We found out that some people fight their way through a waiting list and they finally get that script and they're on their way to the pharmacy. They get there only for the pharmacist to turn it down and say, I don't dispense that. And in a small town, I mean, the next pharmacy may be quite a drive away. So we are finding out about these pharmacy barriers and we've written about that. It's gotten some national attention. And now we're trying to work with policymakers to address some of the suspicious order thresholds that were causing pharmacists in part to turn it down. And so bigger changes that are beyond just Kentucky, they're national changes potentially. I think it's incredible the work that you're doing, the focus that you have, and especially with this award of $87 million, which is a record for any UK grant. Um, can you just talk about the Healing Communities grant? Are you in the second year of that? It's a time warp. <laughs> COVID is a time warp and that study is a time warp. So I, I feel like I'm 10 years in actually. <laughs> 
yeah, I guess we're about two years in and we've been working now in eight counties for some time. And in July, we'll switch and start working in eight other counties. And we randomly um, chose which counties went first. And so these other eight counties have been waiting for us to get there. But essentially what the study does is try to massively scale up overdose education and naloxone distribution. So Narcan distribution largely. And we do that through outreach, through programs that exist, through pharmacies and others. And then we try to expand access to medications for opioid use disorder and the linkage to those and then the retention in them. Um, And then we try to improve safe opioid prescribing and dispensing and getting people to kind of put their old opioids that are sitting in the medicine cabinet in a disposal kiosk somewhere so that they're not getting into kids' hands. So those are the main three buckets of initiatives we do in that study. Is there anything that you have learned or that you have discovered that has kind of surprised you with this work? That's a good question. I think that on the Narcan front, I've been surprised at the number of missed opportunities that we had. Gels could be handing out Narcan at release fairly easily and doing overdose education with them because they are such high risk. And some of the jailers we work with have just been tremendous champions of this. It's really been inspiring. We have also missed some opportunities to hand out Narcan for people leaving treatment facilities who could potentially save somebody's life and their family, you know, when they're returning back to a place where people are using the missed opportunities. I think the extent of those were surprising to me. I knew there was stigma around medication, but I don't think I appreciated the full extent of the stigma that we might encounter on that front, especially on methadone. And so that has been challenging. Are all those counties that you mentioned, you're in eight counties now and getting ready to switch to eight others, are they all in Eastern Kentucky or throughout Kentucky? They're throughout. So, you know, some of us on the faculty, we've worked with certain areas and certain counties and to avoid the temptation to jockey for our favorite counties, we let it all be data driven. They had to have a certain overdose death rate be very high. They had to have a harm reduction program because we knew that was critical to reducing overdose deaths. They had to have a a provider, at least one provider doing medication, and they had to have a jail because those were some of the requirements of the grant to work with behavioral health, justice, and public health. And then they couldn't already have some major UK initiative happening. So again, just kind of trying to spread the wealth. And so that's how we landed on those 16 counties. There are, they're Northern Kentucky, they're Louisville, Lexington, several in Central Kentucky, and then, of course, some out in Eastern Kentucky. They're spread around. Are, are you going to tell us your favorite county? No. <laughs> Obviously. No way. I'm not falling in that trap. <laughs> I work in too many. <laughs> I know you recently received an award to do research on COVID in the coal fields, which may, may be a switch from drug abuse. Do you want to give a sentence on, on what that's going to be all about and maybe just talk about your other research that you're doing right now? Yeah, I'm happy to. The new project that we have around COVID is a different direction for me. So in in my past life, I worked on vaccine hesitancy as a research area. And I randomly received this email from this group in Wells. They wanted to look at COVID and COVID vaccination in the coal fields of Wells. I wasn't even aware Wells had coal fields, but they do. And the Appalachian coal fields. They're more of like sociologists types and and there's an epidemiologist involved there. And they felt like maybe that common legacy of coal mining and having coal mining 
decline and that that experience could contribute to similarities potentially in some certain attitudes around vaccination or risk for COVID and whatever. So we we contracted with some polling companies in Wales and in the U.S., and they did surveys online of a panel of people, just like you see in these political polls in the Appalachian states, central Appalachian state, and then in Wales. And so we have just now gotten the data and I haven't even had a chance to look at it. But we asked some really interesting questions about you know, people's trust of information, health information, why they didn't want the vaccine, why they did want the vaccine, <laughs> whether or not they've had COVID, political beliefs. I mean, it was it ran the whole gamut. That's very interesting. Did you do research on the unemployment rate of people with diabetes versus the unemployment rate of people with chronic opioid abuse? No, I haven't. Have you done research on that topic? No, I mean, but <laughs> okay. we're, we're like number one for diabetes and number one for opioid abuse. I just think it would be interesting. And we have to be top five in unemployment. I would I've never had you. that request, but I'll look into it. <laughs> okay. I'm just curious. I did want to ask you in general on this episode, what do you hope that people get out of this episode? Is it education? Is it, I, I don't know, from your own personal opinion, what do you hope people get out of this episode? Yeah, I think to humanize, I want to humanize people who are using drugs and dealing with opioid use disorder a bit and try to remove some of that stigma. So I hope they can walk away able to see them as humans who are struggling with a condition and also able to see that harm reduction sort of doesn't come with those risks that they think it does. It actually makes a lot of a common sense and that some of the misconceptions they may have about medicines like methadone, buprenorphine are not, don't hold true. And that that is a valid path to recovery and remission and that people can be on it just like drugs for hypertension. And, and I really want to normalize that because it should be. So that's, that's my hope here. I, I was, you know, it's a little odd to ask this question in this episode, but since we ask all of our guests this, I have to ask you too. Okay. Um, Brace what, myself. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Just whatever rolls off the tongue when I say the word Appalachia. The Red River Gorge. It's the first thing that comes to mind. Oh. I know it's become more and more and more popular lately and uh-huh. that people flooded that area, but I just, I love it. It's beautiful. You know, we talk about a lot of things that are, are sad and difficult, like substance use. We've talked about unemployment, and, but Appalachia is beautiful. And I, I mean, I gravitated there for that reason. And the people are so resilient and tight knit. I mean, there are a lot of strengths and I don't think that people sort of give those folks credit for that. There's a lot of stigma. Y'all talked about that on your other episodes and it's just unfounded. Yeah, um, sound like you were born here. <laughs> the <laughs> accent gives it away. I don't have an accent. <laughs> Still have some Georgia left in me. I've heard some eyes eyes in there a few times. Yeah, no, my mom notices that when I go home. (laughs) She noticed I picked that up. Uh, Speaking of that, you know, you mentioned when you first went to Eastern Kentucky, it reminded you of home. uh, This is something we typically ask guests too. Where do you you call home and what makes it unique for you? Well, I still call Georgia home, but why did Eastern Kentucky sort of feel like home? I, I mean, I would drive down the road and people are sitting on their porches talking to their neighbors. People are out in the yard doing things. They talk to people at the gas station. You know, everybody knows everybody. And that's really what made it feel like home. Plus it was just, it's just beautiful rural area. I don't know. It's just cities. Cities can't rival that. We, we agree. (laughs) (laughs) 
April or Dr. Young, thank you so much for educating us, for being on this episode. We, we definitely appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for having me. Thanks a lot. Appreciate your time. Hey, Will. Hey, another great episode. Lots of knowledge just dropped upon us by Dr. Young. I really enjoyed her spending some time with us. And as always, I'm like a sponge, just trying to learn from uh, all the smart people we have on this show, man. It's impressive. Yeah, definitely. What's really impressive is, is the work that she's doing and how important it is. You know, overdose rates are increasing so much. There was a time when they were leveling off in regards to prescription drugs. When the access to prescription drugs went down, there was an uptick of heroin. Like she, like she mentioned, there was an uptick of uh, synthetics. There was an uptick of fentanyl. And that just increased the overdose death rates. And we've seen a significant increase. And, and it's so important that she's dedicating her research to try to reduce those death rates throughout eastern Kentucky, throughout central Appalachia. Yeah, I mentioned at the beginning that we're the epicenter and she couldn't have picked a better place or area to, to start her research and, and to, uh, you know, really hone in on, on things. Unfortunately, it's a title that we don't necessarily want in, in Appalachia, but uh, it's the fact of the matter. I'm glad that people are coming up with solutions to try to fight it rather than just cave into it and say, oh, well, I guess this is who we're going to be forever. It doesn't have to be that way. And it's through her research that really allows things to, to happen and, and good things to come from, you know, the, the things that she proves to be true. Yeah. And I'm glad a large part of our conversation was also focused on destigmatizing substance abuse yeah. disorder and, and the individuals that have this disorder. Because it is a disorder, like we mentioned, it is a disease, yeah. as well as harm reduction. And a lot of the harm reduction programs that she talked about was naloxone that we talked about, was drug courts, was the syringe services, as well as medication to treat opioid abuse. And, and I just want to get your thoughts on that. You know, there's this stigma around a lot of these. A lot of people push back against these programs. And, and we talked about that in the episode, but yeah, I just wanted to ask you what you thought about those programs and those resources to help in regards to harm reduction strategies. Well, I will say that the stigma that you speak about and that she talked all about is definitely real in southeastern Kentucky, Appalachia. I'm in it every day. I see it. I see those people when they leave the clinics. I talk to those people when they're embarrassed to, to tell you what they have or what they have gotten or where they've been, the clinic that they came from. And the stigmatism of the general public and the reaction is definitely, definitely there. I think just listening to Dr. Young talk about it has really given me a new perspective on, you know, those people in crisis. And as I mentioned during the show, I don't think there's one family in Appalachia that hasn't been affected by opioid abuse. It really helps me to hear the research on, you know, how do you treat these people? You can't just turn your back on them. This helps me realize how we can help them, encourage them and utilize some of those things that are out there so that they can eventually get to the point where they are getting help and moving in the right direction because it is a disease. And like you mentioned already, 
diabetes is the disease. We're also the, the epicenter of diabetes in the nation. We're the leader in that as well. We don't think about that the same as we do opioid abuse. I think we probably should. I mean, these people need to be treated. They need to have the opportunity to be treated. And some of those things that are out there that we have such a stigma about, we probably need to do more of rather than than looking down on. I don't know about you, but her words and her research have really kind of changed my view a little bit, honestly. That's perfect. And that's exactly why we wanted to have Dr. Young on, on the show, just not only for her incredible knowledge, her incredible research, but also to help people understand what these strategies are, are capable of and why, why they're being implemented and what the purpose of them are. When you talk about diabetes, when you talk about opioid abuse, we really need to create a culture of just health in general in Appalachia, yeah. just to improve health overall in Appalachia. We we on paper, we're one of the most unhealthy regions in the country. And if we yeah. can just focus on creating that culture of health and whether it be diabetes treatment, whether it be harm reduction strategies, whatever those strategies may be, maybe we can focus on those a little bit more to try to preemptively help the problem than to be reactionary in the end. Absolutely. I really appreciate Dr. Young and her time. And I hope that we are doing something to help spread the word, spread her word, spread her research. You know, we can help connect other people together to help fight the crisis that that is very much prevalent in our region. I know it's kind of uh, some serious talk going on, talking about opioid abuse and that kind of thing. I did want to ask you about of place tonight, Will. Is there anything that kind of hit you as we went through this this interview and went through the talk? Uh, yeah, there, there was. Obviously, this whole episode is on the opioid epidemic, but I'll kind of stay on that topic. But one brief thing we briefly mentioned during the episode that kind of registered with me because of the, the work that I do in economic development was this idea around how opioid abuse affects the economy. So in economic development, it's always been about jobs, jobs, jobs. How do we create jobs? Was there, There's been a shift away from that recently into workforce, 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 and how do we train the workforce in order to provide opportunities for jobs? And as part of that, there's also been this shift recently of using economic development resources towards recovery strategies because it's been a need. It's been such a need within Appalachia especially. And I'm glad to see that some of these economic development resources are being put towards these strategies and these potential outcomes in that regard. One thing that I read the other day, a stretch of about almost 20 years, about 15 to 16 years up until uh, I think the last recorded date was like 2015, there was reduced labor in regards to opioids of 2 million workers in the U.S., and, and this caused an aggregate loss of $1.6 trillion to the U.S. economy. And of that $1.6 trillion, the largest negative effects occurred in Appalachian states of Georgia, New York, Kentucky, West, and West Virginia. I just wanted to point that out. You, you know, not only does this affect individuals, does this affect families, but this greatly affects our economy throughout Appalachia. And we're talking about all these funds. A lot of our episodes have been on economic development, how to drive entrepreneurship, workforce programs, economic development programs. All these things are, you know, utilizing these funds to develop these programs while you know, this opioid epidemic is a major strain on the economy. 
And in order to provide further opportunities in regards to economic development, we need to solve this problem or at least help with some of the solutions. And so that shift of of economic development resources into these harm reduction strategies or other things in regards to the epidemic, I think is a a great thing. One of the things I, I just wanted to talk about was a lot of these recovery in the workforce or people that are coming out of recovery of how to transition them or help them get into the workforce. And I just think that's a way, great way to utilize funds, not only for individuals that are coming out of recovery, but also for individuals that have this abuse disorder that are coming out of the jail system. These individuals, they need a purpose just like everyone else does. And we don't need to, like you said, turn our backs on them. We need to provide solutions. We need to provide opportunities for everyone. I told you a couple of weeks ago, you started talking about that, that B word, the, the billions of dollars. Now you stepped it up and given me facts about trillions of dollars. Yeah. And I'm completely blown away by those numbers that you mentioned, the impact, the economic impact that the crisis has had on Appalachia. I appreciate your knowledge on that. And uh, you're so right with those statements. And that being said, I didn't want to get too dark on this episode. I just wanted to mention that of place because it, you know, it affects everyone throughout Appalachia. No one's immune to uh, what's going on here. Also, a lot of great things going on here, which is why we have this podcast. Absolutely. I look forward to Dr. Young's uh, research on the topic that I gave her in regards to diabetes. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to that coming out soon. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, man. Well, I guess we can look forward to next week's episode. We won't give any anything away, but just come back and, and stay tuned for, for what that might be. But until then, I guess I, we can end it like I usually do. Till next time. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting thin. Now I'm facing down with a grin. I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong I'm in the mountains